going to be in Exodus chapter 11 and 12 this morning. Got a lot of scripture we'll be reading this morning, but the scripture will kind of tell the story. So we'll have a lot to cover. One of the rare moments in life is the moment when you know your life is about to change forever. We've talked about this idea before, but it's funny that the moments that so often come to define us, so often shape our lives, are the ones that we don't actually see coming. That's usually how it happens. You're in the right time at the right place, or if you are a negative type of person, you're in the wrong time at the wrong place, and your life is shaped by whatever happens. But it's not something that you woke up that day knowing it was going to happen. You can hear that, that you know, Dateline narrator voice, they woke up. They thought it was another day, just like any other. That's how it goes. But there are some moments that you know of ahead of time will forever change you. That when you put your head on the pillow that night, when you wake up the next day, either by the time you wake up or as the day goes on that next day, that when you go back to bed that next night, you will be different. Something or maybe everything will have changed. I remember I felt that way on Christmas Eve, the night before I got my first Sega. That's what I knew, is that my life was going to change when I woke up that next day, because I was going to be ready to play video games until my eyes were bleeding, because that's what I wanted to do. I knew my life would be uh, different. And I guess in my small little world, before I got that thing, that was true. Uh, But there are many other days that we could all name, wedding days, birth of a child, a new job, a graduation day, perhaps the death of a loved one, or maybe when you moved to a new place, you go to sleep, and then the next day you know that you're going to be packing up everything that you have and everything that you've known into a U-Haul, and you will be starting something new. You just know that life is going to change forevermore after that day. Can you think of a day like that for you? When you went to bed, and the next day you knew you would never be the same. Today, that's what we're going to look like. That's what, or that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to see is, is a day that, that, not necessarily for an individual, but for an entire nation of people, that they were going to go to bed one way knowing everything that they knew about life, that they had known for generations, that they had known for centuries, that by the time they went to bed the next night, everything would have changed. We're going to look at the Passover and the 10th plague against Egypt. And we're going to see this take place in a grand drama and what is frankly a terrifying story that would result in a picture that would become the theme of Israel's salvation and ultimately would become the theme of the salvation of the world, including us. So we've been in Exodus, we've looked at these different plagues throughout Egypt, we've made it through the first nine, we've spent some time over the last few weeks not taking them one by one, but kind of looking at uh, different ideas that you can take from the plagues, different ways to look at them and how God uses them and how he separates his people. And and last week we talked about this this idea that, that, that God's wrath and God's love are not opposite things, but instead wrath and love fit together to to show a full picture of a God who truly loves and who is truly holy. And this week we're going to see that very idea play out all in the final plague, that God is both wrathful and that God is also good and holy. 
So we've seen these, these, these plagues so far get progressively worse. They, they, they get worse and worse as you go throughout each one. It started with the, the, the Nile turning to blood, but then things got worse. And you had frogs and gnats and then flies. And then you had the death of the livestock. You had hail. You had darkness that came over the land. You had all of these that got a little bit worse. It had greater and greater implications as you go through it. And we've seen Pharaoh agree to let Israel go only to go back on his agreement. We've seen him offer counter offers to Moses where some can go but not all where all can go but not the livestock this continual negotiation process that Pharaoh had where he was trying to work out a deal where he could still look like he was the one that was in control and dictate the terms and what we said is that that's not how this was going to work God demanded unconditional surrender no negotiation Moses would come back every time and he would tell him no deal so now we come to the 10th and, and what we know is the final plague. And God has some very intense and very specific instructions for Israel prior to this plague, more so than any of the others. The others may have given a, a, a slight warning, maybe even a little bit of a heads up, but not to the degree that we have for this one. This one, God really lays it out there and he says, here's what's about to happen and here's what you need to do. And we need to read through this if we're going to understand what's unfolding in this drama before our eyes. You know, this is kind of the, the, building, the, the, the building tension in the story. Now this all kind of comes to this point where this week and next are, are going to be kind of the, the, the climax of the story here. And so we're going to see exactly what happens as it all builds to this moment. So look with me in Exodus chapter 11. And as I said, a lot of scripture to read, but the scripture will tell the story. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people and, that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And the man Moses was highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So they've noticed what Moses has done and the God that he serves. And people have started to take note, hey, this, Mo this Moses is the real deal. The God that he serves really follows through on this stuff. We should be paying attention to him. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight I will go through Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock, there will be a great cry of anguish throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether man, <clears throat> whether man or beast, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." All these officials of yours will come down, to, come down to me and bow before me, saying, Leave, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. And he left Pharaoh's presence in fierce anger. So this time, God grants Moses and Pharaoh the full preview of what's about to happen in, in, in really shocking detail. They'd had a warning before, but nothing like this, nothing this specific. And you have to wonder what's going through Pharaoh's head at this point as he hears Moses give the warning. His gods have just been whipped every possible way. In these nine other plagues, his worldview had been dismantled. The things he had put his trust in that could deliver him had been summarily dismissed 
and destroyed by Yahweh. His magicians had been outmatched. And Pharaoh's gods and idols had been shown for what they are. It can be a disorienting thing when your idol's powerlessness is revealed. Pharaoh had to be disoriented. He had to be confused. He had to be wondering what in the world was going on. Everything he knew to be true, everything he, he, he thought that would happen, these gods that would deliver him, these gods that could stand up to any, had been whipped so greatly. He had to wonder what was next and whether he, who was supposed to be the supreme god of Egypt, was going to be able to stop whatever Yahweh had in store. We don't know exactly what's going on in Pharaoh's mind, but we know that this plague that is coming is going to be terrible. So Moses delivers the news to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to Israel. And all knows, and everyone knows that when this night comes, everything will change. Either Yahweh will deliver on his promise, and Egypt will be subdued, or Yahweh will fail to deliver and Egypt will prevail. Either way, things would be different when morning came. In order to, pre- to prepare Israel for what's about to happen, God gives very unusual instruction. He gives them what is effectively the first corporate worship instructions in all of Scripture. And he does it, he does it in, an, in an odd way. He does it with a meal. Now, think about this for just a second. If you're about to set people free who are going to uh, go and, and overthrow the, the oppressors that are over them, they're going to finally break free of their slavery, and he's going to put together a worship service, what, what, kind, of, what kind of gathering would you put together? Man, I'd put together the, 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 all the hype music I could find. I would get people fired up. I'd get them ready to, to fight. I'd have, I'd have some like famous movie star coming to deliver a, a, a great monologue to get them all psyched up so they're ready to go. Have a great coach show up and give the, the, the best pregame speech he could ever give. And I would say, all right, let's roll. Are you guys ready? Here we go. And you, know, you get the torches and you're ready to fight. But what God says is, here's what you're going to do before this night comes. You're going to eat a meal together. And it's a very specific way that you're going to eat this meal. So look with me in chapter 12. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. So basically what he's saying is what's about to happen is going to completely redefine everything, even the calendar that you use. This will be what kicks off your year because it will define you as a people. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month they must select an animal of the flock according to their father's households, one animal per household. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the, nearest, and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one, one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it, roasted over the fire, along with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. 
Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over the fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part that does not remain before morning. And here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. This, tra- this translation is interesting. If, if you actually read what it says there, it says you should have your, your, your garment tucked into your belt. And then that, that changes it to dress for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So he gives these detailed instructions, these very specific ways in which things are supposed to happen. Not just what to eat, but how to prepare it. What to wear when you eat. The manner in which to eat it. Very specific. And none of it makes any sense. It doesn't make sense to us, and I don't think it would have made any sense to Israel either. Except the fact that God wants to show that he has specific actions for his people to take in a certain way to take them. The preparation of the meal is pretty straightforward, but I find it interesting how they're supposed to take that meal. This says dress ready for travel. As I said, the, the, it, it really says the, the garment tucked into the belt. The idea is that when they take this meal, that they're not to put on their fanciest dress and to come ready to impress. This is not a religious ceremony that is designed to make themselves look good or for other people to look at them or even for God to look at them and say, I'm so impressed at how fancy you are. They're not supposed to put on their best dress for this religious ceremony. They don't clean themselves up and put on this ornate religious ritual. Instead, they're to eat it quickly, with staff in hand, ready to run. Basically, what it would be for us is, you need to eat this meal that's this religious ceremony. You need to show up with your track shoes on, with your workout gear on, with your car keys in hand, because at any moment, you could be expected to sprint out of here. Now, that doesn't make any sense to do something like that unless you really think you may need to do that. You see, for Israel to do this is an act of faith. For them to show up at this meal dressed in, in clothes they would, they would never eat in otherwise shows that they trust that God is about to do what he said he's about to do. They are effectively saying, we don't see anything happening here before us yet. But we'll be prepared for the moment when it does happen. Because we believe that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. It can be easy for us to sit back and to think that we have all the time in the world. It can be easy for us to sit back and to think, you know what, I'll get to that thing when I get to that thing. And I know God says that, 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 that he's, going to, uh, he's going to be there and he's watching and all this other stuff. I know, I know that God's a part of all this, but you know what, I'll, I'll get to it. But God has called us to prepare our hearts. And we would do well to listen and to act on faith to do things even before we think we need to do them simply because we trust that God is going to do what he says. And Israel does just that. Let's read a couple more verses here that further describe some instructions. Verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So a few more details about how it's to be done and what is to be done. It's interesting, whenever we read through this, we think about, and we talked about this back on the very first set of plagues, it's interesting that, that so often we think about how these plagues are really just for the Egyptians, that they affect the Egyptians only, but that's not the case here. This plague is for everyone. This plague was going to take down everyone and anyone. Israel wasn't spared unless you had killed the lamb and placed the blood over your doorpost and you stayed in the house. It wasn't simply because the Jewish people had been God's people that they had been spared. This isn't just simply a matter of the fact that God said, I'm going to punish them, I'm not going to punish you. The judgment that was going to come was going to be universal. It was not selective. It was for everyone. The only thing that would spare them is if they had been marked the way God had instructed. His judgment was severe. It was hard. And it would have been universal except for these instructions. Now let's go through these instructions with a little bit more detail as we keep going here in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through, the, through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer into your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you are to observe this ritual. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So according to this, this was to be a continual thing, something that was meant to provoke future generations to ask, what in the world are you guys doing? This seems really weird. Why are you guys doing this? It would provoke future generations to look back and to say, what is going on here? This seems like something I've not seen anybody else do. My other friends who aren't Jewish don't do this, so why are we doing this? They would ask the question, what are we doing? And it would enable those older generations to be able to reflect and to talk about God's faithfulness and mercy in the wake of this tenth plague. This was to mark the night of nights for Israel. Can you imagine being there that night? What that must have been like? Do you think it would have been a festive Christmas Eve-like atmosphere? Kids playing games, knowing something big was about to happen, everyone having fun, people drinking too much, people enjoying the evening, laughing, everyone having a good time. I don't think it would have been. I think it would have been a solemn, terrifying event. Can you imagine the sound that that many lambs being sacrificed in unison would make? The blood that would be in the streets? The unusualness of it all, the fear of what had been promised and prophesied to come, the fear of the unknown and what this would be like, 
As families gathered and worshipped according to Yahweh's commands, the air must have been thick with tension. Once the instructions had been followed, the people of Israel climbed in their beds knowing that tomorrow when they woke up, their world would be forever different. So now let's read in verse 29 what happens when that moment comes. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians. And there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there was not a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get up, leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship Yahweh as you have asked. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave. Then also bless me. So finally, after the horror of that night, after all the other plagues had failed to do it, this night finally Pharaoh relents. No conditions, no negotiation, as he weeps for what he has lost and for what his people have lost, Pharaoh offers his unconditional surrender to Yahweh. Yahweh has prevailed and Pharaoh has relented. I wonder what the streets would have been like that day in Goshen where the Israelites were separated from the Egyptian people. I wonder if they would have been jumping and celebrating. The bad guys had lost. The underdog had prevailed against the dominant powers. They didn't yet have the David and Goliath story, so I'm sure they called it something else. But what what did it mean whenever the underdog had had prevailed and defeated the the, the, the biggest political power in the world? The biggest military power in the world? They had just had an uprising and they had won. Did they celebrate? Do they have a newfound confidence in God? This seems like a moment of celebration, right? When you're set free, whenever you're, you're, you're enabled to go, what you've prayed for and wanted for generations and for centuries. I don't know. I think there would have been a measure of joy as they gathered their stuff to leave. But they were surrounded by the harsh reality of death. Everywhere they looked. They themselves had been spared, but the nation that surrounded them had not. The judgment of Yahweh would be sobering to anyone, even if it wasn't carried out against you. My guess is they woke up that morning and they hugged their children tightly. They praised God for His mercy, and they began the journey to a new home. We'll see that journey next week. The pain of judgment is tangible in these verses. It weighs heavy as you read these. They're hard for me to read. Pharaoh submits, and the judgment of God has been swift and terrible. To our ears, they sound so harsh, so mean, so... I think think a lot of us would say they sound so ungodlike. How is it that this can happen? They sound so far removed from the God that that we worship and that we sing to. After all, isn't God love? How can He carry out such a harsh punishment? 
Again, I talked about this last week, but he carried it out because he loved his chosen people, Israel. And he hated those that rebelled against him. His love and his wrath go hand in hand, and it is on full display in this moment of the Passover. Right here, this in the Old Testament, we have the greatest picture in the Old Testament right here of those two things playing out. The terrible judgment of God, the strongest we've seen to this point in Scripture, and the strongest we will see in the Old Testament. But in the same moment, we have, as we have God's wrath being poured out against sinners and rebels to Him, we see God's mercy being poured out on the people of Israel. His grace and His judgment on full display in the same moment. It's a powerful, powerful picture. And it's one that if we truly want to know and understand who God is, and if we truly want to be able to share the love of God with our neighbors, we have to be honest about the fact that the judgment of God is still also very much a part of who He is. Very quickly, I want to show you three things that God commands here in this moment for Israel to be safe, for them to experience this mercy. Three things that he tells them to do. Remember, this judgment is universal. Israel is not spared of this judgment, save that they do these three primary instructions given here. So what was the first thing that they had to do to be saved on this night in kind of a general overall picture? The first thing that they had to do is they had to kill the lamb. They had to kill the lamb. They needed a sacrifice. Something had to to go in their place that had to absorb that punishment for them. They needed a lamb to be sacrificed according to these instructions that God gives. The first thing they had to do was kill the lamb. The second thing they had to do is they had to apply the blood. They needed a marker, an indicator that they were indeed exercising their faith in Yahweh by following His commands, by doing as He had laid out for them. They needed some way to be able to say, we're not one of them, God, pass over us. And what was that way? It was to put the blood on the doorposts. So first they kill the lamb. And the second they apply the blood. And the third thing that it says that they had to do, and it says this in verse 22, I think, Yeah, it says, none of you may go out of the door of his house until morning. So the third thing they had to do is they had to stay inside the house. There would be no poking your head out to see how things are going. You you can't hear the well start and then then want to go check it out. You can't hear the the wailing begin and think, oh my gosh, what's going on here? i got to get out of here. i got to run from this place. No, you had to go in your house. No questions asked. Don't go outside because you're scared. Don't go outside because you think you need to find a better way. Don't go outside because you don't think that you're safe and trying to find salvation elsewhere. You have to be convinced the blood on the doorpost can save you. You stay in the house underneath the blood. If you'll remember when we began the book of Exodus, I talked to you a lot about pictures and shadows in the book of Exodus. About pointers that would, that would, would, would begin here and that would point us to a larger context of the story. We called it the type and the anti-type, if you remember that. Talked about the idea of a prototype and what that was, but in the Old Testament, it was the type. It was the original picture. In the New Testament, we would get the anti-type, the fuller picture, the truer picture, the fulfillment of the picture that was in the Old Testament. This picture 
of the Passover is the central type in the Old Testament that finds its fulfillment in the New. If you don't understand the language of the Passover and what's going on here, you won't understand the vast majority of the New Testament. This idea of the blood being applied, the lamb being killed, is what build the gospel writers build upon. Paul explains the writer of Hebrews. You can't understand any of the book of Hebrews if you don't understand what is going on right here. The Passover is a shadow of what is to come. When you move to the Easter story, what you quickly see is that the Passover language is used by Jesus in his final days in order to communicate exactly who he was and why he had come. In the beginning of his ministry, whenever he began his ministry, he came out and John the Baptist sees him and he says, he says Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later, as Jesus comes to the end of his ministry, he does something extraordinarily bold. He takes the Passover. He takes his disciples around the table. He's there for the Passover meal, and he begins to totally redefine this meal. This meal that's laid out here in, in, in Exodus chapter 12 and 13 in excruciating detail of exactly how it's going to be done that had been done for centuries by the Jewish people. Jesus comes and he says, this meal that you know so well that defines you as a people, I'm going to completely redefine it. Because this meal was built on an old covenant, but I come here to establish a new covenant. Not a covenant that abolishes the old, but a covenant that builds upon the old that fulfills the old. He says, I am the Messiah that this whole thing pointed to, and I have come to institute something new. Look with me in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 in the New Testament. If you had kept reading there in Exodus, which we don't have the time to keep reading all of it, but they would talk about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the festival that's tied to that and how that ties to Passover. In Luke chapter 22, verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. This sounds an awful lot like the Palm Sunday passage that I just read earlier. Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you the large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 14, and when the hour had come, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So specifically, I really wanted to do this with you guys. This Passover meal right now, I earnestly wanted to do this with you guys. And there's a reason why this one is so important. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. So he takes these elements of the Passover... These things that are laid out here. And he says, here's the bread, here's the juice, here's these things that are supposed to be a part of this meal. But I'm going to tell you they mean something totally different than what you've always thought. At least now they do. And if you'll notice as you read through this, you notice all the detailed instructions of how the lamb is to be prepared, how the lamb is to be eaten, how the lamb is to be burned before the morning, how all these things were supposed to happen to the lamb at the Passover meal. Yet whenever they describe the meal here, when Luke describes it, there's no lamb present on the table. It's because the lamb was at the table. And he redefines each of these things. And he says... You thought that this meant this, but I tell you it means this. You thought this cup meant this, but it actually means, it's it's actually representative of my blood that is poured out. You thought the bread meant this, but it's actually representative of my body, which is broken for you. And he defines the whole meal on a different level. He tells us his body would be broken, his blood would be spilled, just like that of the spotless lamb for for Passover. This is step one for Passover. Do you remember? You kill the lamb. This is what Good Friday is for us. You kill the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. Jesus is the firstborn among all creation. He is God's only begotten son. So just the same as Pharaoh had lost his son, God sends his son, and God willingly sends his son to endure his wrath. And the lamb is killed. He is crucified, murdered. The second part of the Passover meal, or the the Passover event, is that the lamb's blood must be applied. For Israel, this was literal. The blood went over the doorpost so that God's judgment would pass over, so that they would not feel the pain, so that the, the wailing that comes with the judgment of a holy God would not visit them. But only if the blood is there. Because the judgment, the destroyer, comes for everyone. And so it is with us this morning. God's judgment rests on us all. There are no exceptions. There is no goodness that gets you out of that. There's nothing that that Israel could have done to be good enough for God to pass over them if the blood was not on their doorpost because that is the only way in which they would be saved is if the blood was on the doorpost. For you this morning, for me this morning, there's nothing else I can do besides apply the blood of Christ to my life that will save me. Nothing. Apart from that, we are in danger. You kill the lamb, you apply the blood. For some of you here this morning, perhaps you've heard a friend or a family member talk about how they got saved. 
You heard Chris talk about what it means to be saved earlier. We use that language a lot, especially here in the South, about how you want to get saved and you need to be saved. And this person got saved, so now they're going to be baptized. But what are they talking about when they say that? There's an implication that's built into that that I don't think we always fully understand. Whenever it says that you are saved, that we are saved, what is it that we are saved from? That's the follow-up question. The ultimate answer isn't that we are saved from our sin, though that's true. The ultimate answer isn't that we are saved from hell, though that's true too. The answer is not that we are saved from pain and suffering caused by sin, though that may partially be true. When we get saved, we are saved from God. From His righteous, holy, and unrelenting wrath. And judgment. And how are we saved? The blood must be applied. If you're here this morning and you've not put yourself underneath the blood of Christ, consider these words this morning. God's judgment is not a thing to be dismissed. Pharaoh could tell you this. Egypt's weeping can give you a small picture of this. Friend, don't leave here without knowing that you have placed yourself under the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, Jesus. And the final part of Passover was they needed to stay in the house. Don't come out looking for a better, quicker, easier, safer way. There's nothing outside of that blood that will save you. That blood seems wholly insufficient. It's just some red markings around a door frame. Why in the world would that save me? What kind of power does that have? For us today, there is nothing outside of Christ that can save us. Find yourself hidden in Him, the blood applied, and find all your hope here. And don't go looking for another Savior or a better place or something that feels more sure, that feels more right, that, that, that feels like it's, it's more there. Come to Christ and put yourself under Him. If you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, I implore you, stay inside the house where you're safe under His blood. At the cross, we see the same picture that we saw in the Old Testament. Now magnified and made available to anyone who would place themselves under it. In the Old Testament, the most raw and painful picture of God's wrath is found in the tenth plague. But the most beautiful picture of salvation and mercy is found in the same story. So it is on the cross. It is the ultimate picture of the wrath, the justice, and the holiness of God. And it is also the best picture of the immense and glorious grace of God. His wrath and his love on full display. This morning, we're going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper. This meal that Christ redefined. We're going we're to take these as Christ's body broken for us. As his blood spilled out for us. If you're here and you're a Christian, I invite you to come and take these elements and to consider as we head into Holy Week, the broken body and the blood spilt on the cross. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would ask that you would abstain from this. You just stay seated or someone will be willing to pray with you. 
Nobody's going to look at you, think anything different about you. I just ask that you would abstain because, because you still don't understand the full power of the blood being applied. And we would love to talk to you about that. This morning we want to celebrate the power of the cross. This morning we want to celebrate the lamb that was slain for us. The writer of Hebrews talks about how the blood of lambs and goats can never atone for sin. It was never meant to be the permanent atonement for sin. But that Christ, when he was sacrificed, when he was sacrificed, he then offers the sacrifice for our sin once for all. If you will come. In the Passover, in the book of Luke and in the Gospels, the lamb is slain. And then today we continue this and we want to ask, has the blood been applied? And are you staying in the house, safe under the blood? Will you consider that this morning? Will you pray with me? Father, what a powerful picture this is. Father, our hearts break and we weep as we consider the pain and the the terrible night that must have been. And Father, our hearts rejoice as we consider the people of Israel who were spared and who were saved and could rejoice in your grace that you had shown them. Father, this week may we reflect on that idea. And in this moment, may we be rejoicing that that salvation, that blood applied is available to anyone that would repent. There is no one that is too far that anyone can come to Christ and can be under the blood of the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The tables are open.